Welcome to the Rock to Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I am floating in cyberspace with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today in the virtual cupboard is legendary photographer and Rock Archive founder, Jill Farmanovsky. Welcome, Jill. Oh, thank you. Um, I feel very welcome and in good oh, company. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you and hear you. And because we have you on the show today, Jill, we've decided to make the episode a rock photography special that we will also be talking a bit later about hot chocolate's Errol Brown, who died five years ago on the 6th of May, and also about some of the new pieces we've added to the library. Jill, where better to start than to ask you how you came to be? one of the UK's most famous rock photographers. Where did you start? How did you get your foot in the door? It was all an accident. There was no planning involved other than a kind of a strong urge to find some way to get closer to artists like the Beatles from when I was a really young teenager. I thought I must try to find a way to have tea with the Beatles and um, <laughs> yeah. help, help the them with their problems. Your fantasy was to have tea with them. I, yes. I, that's so sweet. Yes, I mean, <laughs> and I did even take a picture of Paul McCartney once with, outside, you know, his house near Abbey Road where I used to hang out with, I was a bit too young to be an apple scruff, but, <laughs> but, but not too young to take a picture of Paul. But I didn't want to be in the picture. I just had two of my school friends, they were in the picture and I took the picture. I just thought it was nicer to be on the other side of the camera and that certainly hasn't changed. And then as I became a kind of art student and immersed in the rock culture of the early 70s, I just thought I've got to find a way to get into this business in some form or other. But it wasn't like a conscious, I must do this, that or the other. I was just, I think, waiting for an opportunity which presented itself in a bizarre way when I went to the Rainbow Theatre to see the band Yes on the 14th of January 1972. So yeah. a key date for me. I wasn't a particular fan of the group Yes, but somebody gave me a ticket. And more importantly, I'd just done the first of a two-week course in photography at the Central School of Art and Design. So I need to just preface that by saying in those days, photography was not considered an art. You couldn't study it at degree level at art school. Mm-hmm. You could only do it at the LCP, London College of Printing, or as a postgraduate course at, say, somewhere like, you know, the Royal College. Yeah. So, But it was a service department. And so I was in textile design at the time. And the first week, you know, we learned how to load a film and then process it and, and so on. And at the end of that first weekend, we were given a, a roll of film and, and a lens to take home for the weekend. And that's when I went to see Yes!, So I had this college camera and lens and was sitting in the balcony on the cheap seats. And I thought, well, I'll take some snaps. But obviously, there were just specks on the stage from up there. (laughs) And um, I worked that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I saw, you know, down at the base there, I saw some photographers, uh, not in the pit, actually, they were down the aisle. Maybe, yes, we're using the, 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 you know, the, the pit for some projections or something. And I thought, well, if I go down there, I'd get better pictures. And I just said to the people, I was with, I'm going to go and have a go. And I just got up and went downstairs and in through the auditorium door and just headed straight for the central aisle. And I was carrying a camera that looked sort of professional and they were sort of rarer in those days. 
And I just went down the front and took my <laughs> roll of film with the others there. And at that very show, after the show, I was asked by two guys who, who were working there if I wanted to take their place as a photographer there. And they were off to make a film and do stills or something. And they, they said, look, you won't get paid, but you'll get a pass and they'll pay for your, you know, your expenses. You know, and they said, well, are you professional? And I, I think I just said yes. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yes, you were seeing yes and you said yes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The clue was in the name of the band. I mean, it's nice. a fantastic story because you talk in your book, The Moment, which I have my copy of here, you talk about being quite shy when you moved to England from Rhodesia, where you, yes. where you spent the first few years of your life. And I think you regard yourself as quite shy. And yet, as a photographer, you have to sort of develop this innate chutzpah, don't you? Yes. Is, yes. That, a fair, is that a fair comment? Absolutely. Because there, there it was. You went down and said, yes, I'm a professional photographer. <laughs> and you're not known for being dishonest. No, <laughs> I hope not. Um, there are some bending of rules, of course, but I think I'm extremely persistent. That's what I am. And, and also, I don't give up. No. <laughs> I'm a real sort of grafter as well. And I, I don't take things for granted. So I kind of got a combination of factors that, I mean, I can't compete with those photographers. And there, there are quite a few that sort of elbow people out of the way in a scrum. Mm -hmm. I can't compete with the paparazzi wouldn't want to anyway of doorstepping. I never recognise anybody. So, <laughs> so I'd be hopeless. And in fact, I've had conversations with famous people and not even known who they were at the time. So I'm, I wouldn't be good at that. So I've had to find my own path to, you know, getting into places. And I did that sort of almost immediately, really, and had to and still do and mm. kind of enjoy it. Mm. There's a secret. <laughs> and I mean, that served you well because in... So we're actually going to run this piece you called the Bob Quest, the quest for Bob Dylan. And, you know, you describe a couple of occasions where you just simply, in your very natural way and not pushy way, you just ask him if you can take a picture of him. And it seemed to work. It kind of charmed him. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you go to a, a function and somebody's sitting like this particular one you're referring to was a club gig and there was a launch of an artist and mm. Dave Stewart sitting there with Bob Dylan, I just and I've got a camera. I just said, well, could I take a picture? And Dylan answered just one, <laughs> yeah. turned his head away. And then I shot one picture. I mean, that's very bizarre. I mean, normally people go, oh, yes, you know, by all means and, you know, that sort of thing. But mm. so, yes, I mean, I will go up to somebody and say, can I take your picture? More often than not, I often take pictures without people knowing because the pictures are better. Yeah. So from that point of view, I, you know, I do work a kind of, I do trawl a kind of narrow line between intrusion and, well, so maybe it just is intrusion, but for, for the right reasons, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Knowing that both, both Mark and Jasper are photographers, I would turn this over to them for a moment and just say, would you guys agree that the photography, the work of people like you, Jill, and Penny Smith, and Jim Marshall, and Kate Simon, and Barry Feinstein, has been, in a sense, as important to rock and roll, to pop music, as the music, almost as the music, and certainly as the writing itself. Mark, is that a fair comment? Well, I mean, I, you know, in a way that what we now regard as rock photography developed at precisely the time you were sort of starting off, Jill. I mean, before that, it was much more functional. You're talking about classic sort of Fleet Street photographers, you know, smudgers doing their stuff. And there was something about 
the early 70s on the enemy in Melody Maker, when suddenly the, the editors started taking the photographs more seriously than they had before, started featuring more heavily. First of all, sounds, then enemy had full bleed photographs on front covers and so on and so forth. So certainly in the time as I was growing up as a fan, the photography became more and more important. Yes, I'd say that's, that's right. When I began, which was 72, it was only live shops, actually. Yeah. Melody Maker, who, I mean, Enemy didn't seem to be such a strong force in 72, but although Penny was shooting for them, and I think, I'm not sure when Nick Logan took over the editorship, but I worked for Melody Maker, and it was only live shots. That's what Barry Wenzel did them, I did them, Robert Ellis did them, yeah. and Mike Putland and so on. And then what was happening was that there was starting to be much more adventurous photography coming from the States, from Rolling Stone yeah, and so yeah. on. And that really had an influence, but we didn't have colour. So there was a kind of a black and white period of time when it did start to move towards photojournalism a bit more, but it was all black and white, still a lot of live shots. And then something like Record Mirror, I think, was the first to use colour. But of course, we're talking also, unlike what happened with Rolling Stone, about newsprint. So, I mean, you had this sure. terrible paper yeah. and the pictures would sort of, you know, sink into the page. <laughs> you had to really do contrasty prints and so on and to have any impact. Yeah. And the changeover kind of came where photographers got suddenly became perhaps swapped with journalists because in the early 70s, the journalists were the kings, really. And the snappers, of which that's what mm -hmm. we were called, snappers, the snapper came in and did shots of the journalists talking. Um, maybe, if you were lucky, you got a couple of minutes at the end before the next team of journalist photographer came in to do a quick portrait. Absolutely. I'm, I'm being very aware of Rolling Stone's coverage of the Stone's 1972 tour, which was beauty photographing, some of it by Annie Leibovitz, and I forget the name of the other person who did a lot of photograph. And they featured the photographs almost like a proper gallery, like a colour supplement would run a photo story. I mean, they really, really featured them. And they were beautiful pictures, you know, fantastic mm. pictures. And, you know, I was, what, 72, I was 16, and just been stunned by this. And then very rapidly after that, I mean, Penny Smith started photographing acts offstage in whichever environment yeah. the interview was taking place. And things really changed. It was really something. That's right, yes. I'd say about 74, um, things were starting to move yeah. a bit and feature-led stuff. Whereas I think also there used to be these press shots that were handed out that were sort of, you know, you, you, you've yeah. probably seen them from, from the day when they sort of retouched ones and that's what everybody got and they were free to use. So the real change came around smash hits and, and then the face. At the time of 1980, right. when the face began, then the whole thing flipped, and it was the journalists who were sec playing second fiddle to the to the photographers, <laughs> because to have a cover of the face or to have yeah. a big spread in yeah. the face was so important for an artist's promotion. Sure. Yeah. Would you say that you prefer taking live shots or portraits? It's an interesting question. I do like both, but I must say that because I'm quite shy, that the live shots are still to this day a kind of a deep meditation. That's what they are. And, um, you know, I haven't a clue what was played or whether the performance. Well, I can tell if it was good or not from from my meditation, but I wouldn't have known what song was played or not played. And But the concentration of, of you get on with yours, you go on the stage and do your thing and I'll be here doing mine is such a wonderful kind of chemistry. <laughs> Yeah. Do you ever go to a gig that you're not photographing and wish you were photographing it or vice versa? Because it's obviously a different process for you. You're not, you're not listening to the music in the same way because you're trying to feel it 
through the lens, through the camera, I guess. I, I think it's quite hard for me to, to not take pictures and go to a concert. I, I mean, I have made efforts to do so, <laughs> but I do get a bit... I mean, I'm seeing things all the time. And even, you know, in later years, I became quite interested, liked to listen to classical music. So I went to a few classical concerts at the Festival Hall. And then I found that I really wanted to photograph the conductor. Well, you can't just pick up a camera yeah. and photograph the conductor at a classical music show. Yeah. And, you know, you'd be, it'd be out of the question. But I, I got to the point where I would take a long lens, sit behind in the choir section. And as the last note played I'd whip out the camera and shoot the conductor you know when he was all sweaty and you know these, <laughs> this kind of <laughs> this obsession with with catching things is mm. is something that I cherish yeah I found that the only time the only time you can photograph at a classical concert is when people are clapping yes I do sometimes do I mean it's a lot easier now with high quality camera phones I do sometimes just take out my phone and, and just Take a few You're the person a good we all spot. hate, Jasper. You're the yeah. person. <laughs> not, not, no, but but not during not during the concert, during yeah, the yeah, typing. Okay. And they're yes. not just snaps. I do treat it as a serious tool because I think it has the ability to be treated as such. I mean, I use a normal in, inverted commas camera as well, but you know, for that instance, you're actually less intrusive on a phone than you would be with a camera. Oh, I don't know. If you spoke to Chrissy Hind or Bob Dylan, they jumped down your throat there because they're both completely allergic to these phones. Oh, I'm not talking yeah. about yeah. necessarily rock gigs because I think it's better to be with a camera there because of the, the light shining and whatever but if you're in a classical concert you're in a concert hall the lights are up anyway it doesn't actually make a big difference and people don't necessarily notice and as you were saying about classical audiences they get a bit uppity about about any kind of photography in a classical concert so can, can I just, sorry can I just take, take this up back a bit I mean one thing that's really interesting is the number of women who have emerged as photographers Let's say going back to the wonderful Val Wilmer, who Barney will mention in a, in a moment, through Annie Leibovitz, as I said, Rolling Stone, then yourself, Kate Simon, Penny Smith, Sheila and so Rock. on. Yeah. Sheila Rock. Sheila Rock. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it is interesting. At a time when most of the journalism was very, was very male, that actually there were a number of very, very good women photographers. Was there a reason for that? Well, when we when I began, the, well, obviously Leibovitz was in a class of her own, and she was ahead of the game with being at Rolling mm -hmm. Stone and a one-off, really. In the UK, it was just me and Penny. Yeah, actually, there was no other women in the pit for quite a long time, right. which is where we were in the pit, and mm -hmm. neither of us were trained actually. So we both come from funny places. She came from the did she work for the press? But she was working for Oz or one of those kind of magazines like that, right? And she came with yeah, me yeah. Kent, I think. And I came yes. from, God knows where I came from, from friends. that peculiar... Did she work for Friends? Maybe it was Friends. She came from Friends with Nick Kent. Yes, it's quite possible. Yeah. So we were sort of two oddities in the pit. We hadn't come from the local newspapers or, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. we, both, we were both a little bit out of sync from that point of view. And I suppose we just sort of stood out. And that's the only thing I can think of, because certainly Melody Maker was a very male-dominated yeah. place. And, and NME also was until such time as, say, Julie Birchall and a few of the others came in. I always mm -hmm. remember going in there and, you, you, you know, the only women were secretaries and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about uh, deep meditation, Jill. The picture that we're going to feature of you on the homepage is this, is this absolutely lovely picture of you in 1973, with your camera, taken by Ray Stevenson, we think that it's you watching 
in a state of rapture, Wishbone Ash on stage at the at the Alley Pally. Uh, we might just, <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of it kind of accords with what you're saying about about going into this deeply meditative state. <laughs> the, the other picture we're going to feature is is a is the co- a cover of Sniff and Glue, very different from from Wishbone Ash. This pic you took of Mark P, the editor, founder of Sniff and Glue, and looking quite punky or even quite skinheady. And then Danny Baker, this is June 77. And Danny still looks like some sort of like disco throwback the di- yeah, with a sort the of disco- hair and a high shirt <laughs> collar. No one's given, no one's told, given Danny the memo. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I think da- Danny had received the memo and rejected it. Danny, <laughs> Danny held on to his love of disco and all things yes, about disco. You know, he really he wasn't interested in punk as music at all. No, know? I don't think he ever, he, he never, he never donned sort of punk garb, did he? But, but I mean, that's a nice, it's a nice little juxtaposition there, Wishbone Ash at the Alley Pally, and then shooting for Sniff and Glue. Tell us about the 70s and the rainbow and, and just, you know, what it, what it was like in that, in that decade, that golden decade. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it, it's, it really was in a way from the point of view that you had such good access journalists and photographers, we, we really felt part of the scene. And I came in at the tail end. Uh, Barry Wenzel had even more of a cool time because he was hanging out with Hendrix and, you know, it was much more of a sort of mates relationship. I didn't have any kind of matey relationship except possibly with the Wishbone Ashes because I was dating their manager for a while. But that wasn't until oh, much later the on. <laughs> it's, it's in the moment. It is there. I have, I've, you know, it's all, it's all in there. You have to read it. Read a bit further down, Barney. Well, we, will, we will be, add, I think we're, we're adding good chunks of the moment to Rock's Back Pages this week. So readers, do, do delve in. It's great. Yeah, well, I, I must say I was a photographer long before being a, a girlfriend of a, of, of a rock person. But I was having a great time at, at uh, you know, within a few, I was a really big Pink Floyd fan. That was my band of, of the early 70s. I just loved yeah. them. And they were the first band virtually that I photographed in rehearsal at the Rainbow. So, you know, within a couple of weeks of, of, of saying yes to those photographers, I had a pass that said, access all areas and it, it was written on the past photographer thereby proving I was one as far as I was mm-hmm. concerned and <laughs> then I the next thing I knew that you know I could go in there during the day it was like Pink Floyd were rehearsing or in fact Monty Python used to rehearse there the faces rehearsed there Amazing. and yeah. sometimes I could just go in and take snaps of them rehearsing it was okay nobody seemed to mind and within a very short space of time, I think the rainbow closed. It sort of closed and opened. John Morris yeah. was the original promoter there and closed for a bit. Then somebody else came in. And when it closed, I, I, I found myself at the Brighton Dome when, with Floyd in 1972 when they were testing out Dark Side of the Moon and yes. taking shots in the dressing room. I don't know how I You'd have been the there courage. with Tony Stewart because we had him on the podcast talking about that very show, I think. Is that right, Mark? Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. At the Dome, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. 
and then also that you had this what's his name B.P. Fallon who was Beep. Led Zeppelin's purple-brown beep purple-brown beep as, yeah. as Mark Boland called him he should be on he should be on your show shouldn't he he'd be brilliant <laughs> definitely should oh be god you've got to have the beep on my god and anyway, if you like the look of you you could come in you see so he took a look and you know it was yeah. a bit like <laughs> Studio 54 you can come in and you can't yeah. so I got to photograph Led Zeppelin also at the Dome and then I did things like David Cassidy at Wembley and and so when I was photographing everything and didn't know much really about the music I mean I, I remember photographing Van Morrison in 1973 and thinking good gracious I who is this bloke who sold out like five shows there and people were going mad and so I thought well I, and I, I went to one then I went to two then I went to all five you know so that's the sort of thing that happened at the yeah. rainbow and then I, I also although I I was too shy to speak to them. I saw these people wandering about backstage as well, Robert Plant or Chuck Berry or James Brown and so on. They were all hanging about. And there were two to three shows a week at the Rainbow. I didn't go to all of them, but I went mm-hmm. to quite a few. Did you ever go on tour? Did you ever tour with any bands? Well, Oasis with... later, of course. No, I toured with lots of bands before Oasis, though. I, I went on tour with the Talking Heads. I went on mm-hmm. tour with the police. I went on tour with oh lots of lots and lots of bands actually. How long would you stay on the road with with them on average? Probably two days. You know, yeah. you'd be sent, wouldn't you? You'd be sent to somewhere exotic with a journalist. <laughs> Often the journalist would choose the photographer. So you know, you'd you'd want to some journalists work with some photographers. You and I, Barney, we went off to do Tom Waits in ninety nine. We I did. Know that was we later. did. <laughs> yes, I chose you. No, oh, did you, you choose me? me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on the subject of which, which journalist chose you the most? Yeah, I was going to ask that. I think Tony Mitchell, the technical editor, because Tony Mitchell and, and Hugh Fielder from Sounds, because oh, yeah. there was more Sounds, than, and um, yes. occasionally Gary Bushell. My goodness, they're those bands that he liked. And um... <laughs> you, paid, you paid your dues. <laughs> Pete, Pete Silverton, we did Bob Marley together. No, I mean, I went on the road a lot with these bands. And you say you would wing your way off to somewhere. Well, it didn't, wasn't necessarily glamorous, but you went somewhere. And then if it was, was somewhere glamorous, then the record company would expect copious coverage and a cover. You know, they were pretty miffed if, yes, if, if they sent you away somewhere um, exotic and you, you didn't produce the goods, you see. Do you find it harder to photograph bands, musicians whose music you don't like? Or is it sort of you just get on with it? It's not harder to photograph because you're in the meditation, it's a visual thing. But I do remember photographing Van Halen, who I didn't like that kind of music particularly. And I was in the pit with Ross Halfin, actually. And to me, it was an appalling din. That's how I heard heard (laughs) it. But they were good to photograph. They jumped in the air, they sweated, they they posed. So they're great to shoot. And at some point, I think I shouted to Ross over the din, sort of, isn't this just terrible or appalling or something? And he went, yeah, brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> well, um, Ross was the classic metal photographer. He I mean, was. that was very much his beat, you know. I mean, definitely. You, you, know, you see a picture of a metal band, you look at the credit, Ross Halfin, yeah. almost yeah. every time. The king of hard rock. <laughs> the king of hard rock. I mean... Also known, I'm going to be very mischievous here, so one of his nicknames is Mrs. Page. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. <laughs> um, oh, dear. I just wanted to throw it, because Mark mentioned Val Wilmer, or Valerie Wilmer, as she's known in this piece. So in, in addition to the pieces on and by you, Jill, I've chucked in this 
Brian Case interview with Val from 1977, which is which is great. And I just wondered whether you had, you know, whether you were aware of her work when you started shooting at the Rainbow. Later on, I was. Yes, certainly. I mean, she was already legendary, having come up through the jazz era, really. Yeah. Exactly. And I think I actually saw her a couple of times, too, because there was jazz played at the Rainbow Theatre as well. I, I photographed yeah. Miles Davis, Duke Ellington, oh, there's several others, actually. Well, there's oh, a lovely Hines. Ellington shot in the moment, Jill. Uh, beautiful uh, uh, Ellington actually, shot. The, the, the one thing about Val is she wrote about pop for Hit Parade in the mid-60s, the American paper. She was like their London correspondent. London. And she photographed actually quite a lot of pop stuff. She she told me about driving Jimi Hendrix around London in her Mini wow. in '67 and liking him enormously and kind of you know photographing him. I think at the Albert Hall she photographed him. And I've had some dealings with Val. She's great. We'd love to get her on Rock's Back Pages because she's a very good writer too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we tried to get her into Rock Archive, but she wasn't having any of it. She didn't want to have digital printing at the time. She liked to do darkroom printing. And, yeah. we, you know, that, that meant that it wasn't suitable for major reproduction. So, but I did go and see her. And I mean, it, you know, she's, she's an amazing woman. She's, yes. you know, absolutely amazing. Yeah. She's formidable, I think, is one of them. Formidable, <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. She don't suffer fools gladly. No, absolutely. Do you do you still do darkroom printing? Yes, yes, we have a dark, I have a darkroom here. I don't do a lot. We have a guy here who, who was doing it, but recently he moved away and I, I got some orders for Pink Floyd, who who actually I also went on the road with Pink Floyd, of course, I mustn't forget that. I was on the dark, right. dark side of the moon tour. And in the studio with them when they were recording Wish You Were Here. Um, sorry, I miss, I've miss. i lost the plot here about um, Val Wilmer and, and so on. But yes. I, I just mean- wanted to quote from this Brian Case piece because this quote leapt out at me. She says, basically, the difference between the photographer who knows and the one who doesn't is the feeling. And she says, I like the words and the photograph to be together. Edward Steichen, a very famous photographer, said, a picture is worth a thousand words provided it's accompanied by ten words. That sums it up. <laughs> yes, great. I think that's fair enough. So it is about feeling at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, it is for me because I'm not technically, I'm not a great photographer. I can't, I can't reach the heights of, say, Kevin Westenberg, who's just technically incredible. Or I don't have the literal heights of Annie Leibovitz and some of the taller photographers being rather shorter. So my pictures <laughs> Anton, tend... Anton Corbin. And Anton Corbin, yes, exactly. Yes. The tall photographers. So I'm one of the short <laughs> photographers, Penny Smith is as well. You have to go through people's legs to get our pictures. But yes, I'd say, <laughs> I'd say that we, if you're technically... I mean, I became actually... I don't want to put myself down, because I became technically extremely competent around the time of Oasis and all that sort of thing. I could do anything in a studio, in colour, in black and white, on a large camera. I did stills for films and so on, and I learned an awful lot about lighting. So, But at the beginning, anyway, sort of the incompetence meant that actually the feeling of the picture was what you had to go for. And that has never gone away. Talking about all these other photographers leads us into asking you about the founding of Rock Archive. I mean, I don't know how many photographers you've got on Rock Archive, but some of the people we've talked about certainly are there. So what was the germ of that idea, Jill? 
it came about for two reasons. One, because I'd done a massive Oasis exhibition at the end of 1997 and was left with a lot of kit from sponsors like scanners and printers Ooh. and a website. Handy. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I thought to myself, oh, this, you know, having done a major, major exhibition in the Roundhouse, the whole of the Roundhouse for, for Oasis, I thought next time I do this, it'd be good if it was a general rock and roll show. And also, we haven't mentioned him yet. He's not a photographer but he's an art director, but Storm Thorgerson was a huge mentor of mine of hypnosis and deserves also a a whole section of his own. And I thought, well, maybe if I ask Storm and then I'll ask Barry Wenzel and I'll ask a few photographers, friends of mine, to maybe put a few of their pictures into a kind of a pot of photography. And I had started with a a website called rockarchive.com. Maybe we could kind of bring archives that hadn't been seen before, lots of pictures that nobody's ever seen, put you know, find a way to bring those to the public because they enjoy it. And that was the general feeling of it. And that was in 1998, the website. And then we thought, well, we're not a picture agency. We'll just make these nice prints with the scanner and the printer I inherited. And we'll start (laughs) a a kind of a way that the public can buy prints. And that's how it began, really. And also, I thought to myself, way back in 2001, when in fact, I think we launched together, we had a launch, uh, a special launch of our joint On the commercial road. On the commercial road, exactly. And wasn't (laughs) Mr. Gorman there as well? Mr. Gorman was there. We had him in two weeks ago. So we're sort of, we're we're sort of bringing everything full circle (laughs) on Zoom this month. It was a three-way launch. And actually, you could say it was a launch of an idea to preserve rock history to Mm. archive the era because to me by the time it got to 2001 and we're 20 years on from that the era was already coming to a kind of a it was aging the era Mm. not not the music not the not the talent but the era rock and roll era sort of maintain is kind of started to fade and maybe this coronavirus crisis will put a final a kind of full stop on the whole or or put a hiatus into it uh, a pause into what is the rock and roll era and what did it mean to people because the festivals have been cancelled and and so on so but way before all of that Barney and I uh, we were trying to I think create a kind of an archive of archives and that is what rock archive is to hoping I thought there'd be some sort of museum or or some sort of institute should we say Mm -hmm. that would maybe take on this fantastic material somewhere I could leave my my substantial archive too because I haven't got time in this lifetime to look at it all sure. to sure. bring in the other photographers yeah. there's 60 approximately that wow. contribute to rock archive mm, fantastic and some of them need places to put their work and individually they sell their work but collectively you know a bit of a team player yeah it would be much more powerful to do that and more recently I found a a jailhouse in Hampstead and started a campaign that we could have that as our museum. Yes. The perfect um, venue, the perfect venue for a yes. kind of rock institute. Jailhouse really. rock, yeah. Jailhouse rock, exactly. So that's really underneath rock archives. The reason I've stuck with it for so long, and I think possibly similar motivations for Barney, is that to, this is very interesting stuff. People well, are interested in well, it. Well, it, it's, it's both very interesting and it also has intrinsic value. I mean, in a way, the photographs have more actual value than the words do. I mean, I know that someone like Kevin Cummins, who's, you know, I've known from way back. His pictures of bands like the Smiths and Joy Division in particular have this extraordinary enduring value in a way that the journalist's words in themselves don't. What we, the value with us is the the accumulation of the sheer quantity of stuff, you know, 
but individual photographs. Any photographer of, who works through the 70s and 80s who is any good will have at least some pictures which will just always have an intrinsic value, not just to fans, but to increasingly art collectors and so on and so forth. Photography, it stops time, doesn't it? That's the power of it. And words don't. And so many of the images that people like you and Kevin Cummins took, Jill, they, they I hate the word iconic, but because they freeze <laughs> that moment in time, it's so powerful. It's like life just stopped there. And you can just look at this picture of Ian Curtis and he's not gonna he's not gonna die in that photo, you know. So very powerful. I think it would just be really good to talk briefly about. So one of the very few music journalists, well, who, who I've known and and worked with over the years, who essentially went on to make a career as a, as a sort of specialist writer on photography. I mean, at least that's that's the main thing he writes about. Sean O'Hagan, who I knew at the NME and was a great writer at the NME, and now writes a lot about photography for. The Observer, primarily. So we've just we've made him the writer of the week and just picked three pieces that he's written over the last decade about music photographers in, in particular. So I just wanted to to note that there's a kind of Dylan connection with his obituary of Barry Feinstein, which is really interesting. There's a piece about Dennis Morris, who I don't know mm-hmm. if you knew, who is who is a, a rare example of a of a black photographer who ended up working for Malcolm He's McLaren. A yeah, wonderful. And then the, the last of those is a piece about Henry Diltz, the chronicler of the of the Laurel Canyon scene. Um, <laughs> did, did, do you have anything to say about any of those in particular? Was Dennis Morris someone you ever you ever knew or, or, or worked with? Oh yes, yes I know Dennis well. He was also yeah. a good art director as well. Yeah. Dennis's timing was incredible. I mean he's got the collection superb, wonderful stories about how he ended up as a schoolboy with Marley. Yes. And then his, I love his pictures also of the Sex Pistols and Pill. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're superb. Yeah. Superb photographer. Henry Dills is just such a nice guy. I met him. Sweetheart. Such a, such a sweetheart. And I can imagine him, you know, he's so California. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a yeah. laid back and everything. Yeah. I can imagine he was just excellent for that purpose. Yes. And who was the other one that you mentioned? So Barry, Barry Feinstein, who you probably Barry didn't. Did you no. cross his path? No, probably not. I didn't. But Don Hunstein's, I became friendly with him. Right. And he's absolutely superb. And one of the things that we did in Rock Archive, what I did was to was to go and interview these photographers. Chalky Davis, I did. Yes. I did. I did Don Hunstein. I did Al Wertheimer. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. Al Wertheimer. Yeah. You know, the Elvis photographer who did yeah, yeah. exquisite pictures of Elvis. I mean, I befriended them all because I myself am fascinated by yeah. photographers and their stories so I'd say that you know you know we need a bit more Mr O'Hagan's coming along and doing that sort of yeah. thing because yeah. this is very very fascinating and photographers often have a viewpoint that's quite different to a journalist's sometimes the artist will trust a photographer more not always it can be mm-hmm. the other way but will trust them more simply because they don't know what journalist is going to write whereas if they've got control of the image then they're more likely to sort of open up as people while it, while you're with them. Yes. So yeah. there's great stories to be had from photographers. And yeah. I think it's all part of this kind of archiving, not because it's sentimental. It's not sentimental yeah. at all for me. It's just simply that it needs packaging up nicely. Yeah. The UK has got this extraordinary history of rock and roll along with the, the United States and not a single museum to, to hold it in. It's mad. I was highly amused when I went, visited Roman Abramovich's 
erstwhile private club under the bridge to see it festooned with rock archive items. (laughs) Let me just tell you that's true. He's the only person who has ever done that that in our entire history. Abramovich, who's a Russian, it took a Russian to say, can I have a load of pictures of British artists to put in my club? So he, he actually... We sourced 150 for him, and it's the biggest wow. collection of our work in the whole of the UK. And it's sitting in the <laughs> underneath Chelsea Football Grounds, which is great it's, it's, it's for very a few people in a venue. But that's it. He's the only person who recognised yeah. it. There's also something slightly ironic about putting on a display of photographs inside a club that is almost always pretty poorly lit. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's it's not, not true. It's well, no. well the, the lit. Fo- the photos the photographs, are well lit. Yeah. They're absolutely... I mean, it's, actually, I, was, went, I went there once to see extraordinary offshoot of the Grateful Dead, Tom Constantin playing. And as a club, it's extraordinary. It's got the best sound system I've heard in any club in London. I saw Maceo Parker there, yeah. but it was too full to, to get round to see the images of, yeah. of any. Well, but, but, but on the, on the if you walls, go round but... the back where the seating area is well lit, are just these photographs all over Great. the walls. Well, and yes, also... I'll, have to, I'll have to go. I'll have to go again just to well worth a trip. That is actually the biggest collection that we've got of That's our work. Beautifully lit, beautifully captioned. There's captions. In, in within it, and yeah. that, and that, you know, thank you, Roman Abramovich. Well, surely, surely, Jill, Mr. Abramovich is the man we should go to to raise the money for our jailhouse <laughs> rock institute. <laughs> pocket change, it's so obvious. I mean, we've really missed the trick. Uh, uh, yeah, so, well, he's he's no longer here. Remember, he's, um, I know he's, he's born not persona grata <laughs> Maybe this is Dad. his passport back. Exactly, it's the way we can bring him back. To the UK, so let's but anyway, I, I was very, that. very pleased to see that. And I, 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 given how deep his pockets are, I hope you are well compensated. <laughs> One and only time, <laughs> Jill. It's been wonderful speaking with you about your work, your career, and and rock archive. As we always say, stick around and please just jump in if anything you know, amuses you or you feel you've got something to to say. But so, I mean, is that moment where we talk about the week's new? audio interview. Errol Brown, the front man with Hot Chocolate, died almost exactly five years ago. So we thought we would run this interview. Mark, tell us about the audio. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of oddly charming. I found myself liking him quite a lot as I listened to it. And he's an intelligent, bright, interesting man. The sound quality is a bit sketchy. It's been very processed. It gets better during, it gets better after about five minutes, I think. It it does. It takes place in December 75, and 75 has been a great year for Hot Chocolate. They had something like three top ten hits. Well, culminating in You Sexy Thing, which is at that very moment roaring up the charts. Absolutely. So so they're they're really riding high with You Sexy Thing. Um, I have a bit of a soft spot for that record, actually. When I was when I was eleven, for some reason, I heard that record and bought it on iTunes. I had this sort of very limited number of (laughs) songs I could buy the single of on iTunes with my pocket money, and I bought the single of "You Sexy Thing" at the age of eleven. I have no idea. Well, it's it's also what what did your parents did your parents hear you playing "You Sexy Thing" repeatedly in your bedroom? (laughs) (laughs) No comment. No comment. comment. Anyway, no, but in the context of this, he talks about how uncertain he is of having hits. 
that he feels that Hot Chocolate never had a specific following like most bands do. You know, well, they, the, were very the, the, they were very sort of unusual, hybrid sort of band, weren't well, they, Well, I mean, we, well, we can go into that to some extent later. Should we hear the, fir- you know, the, first, the first clip where he sort of talks a bit about that? Well, well indeed, but in this particular context, it, he feels that they just never had a specific following, mm. so he is never certain of having a hit record. He also felt that he never had the sort of the management push that most other bands have, that let's say a, a T-Rex had and so on and so forth. Well, yes, we'll, we'll go to the, what you're describing about being a, a hybrid band. This clip we'll listen to. He talks about not being a soul band and not really being either a soul or a rock freak person. We had several changes in moods. I mean, you know... Think about this year, Disco Queen, followed by Charles Prayer, changing mood, followed by Sexy, changing mood. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I like it that way. Sure. Um, I didn't grow up a soul freak. Uh, I didn't uh, grow up uh, a rock freak. I was always, I used to like anything that my ears, uh, you know, I was never a fanatical about any kind of music. And that, I think, is why the music is as it is. That it's, uh, how I ex- try to explain it, that it's neither, neither very black or very white. It is a purely down the middle kind of thing, which makes it a different, uh, why it has a different kind of feel. We were together since we were five. She was so pretty, Emma was a star in everyone's eyes. That's interesting. Actually, elsewhere in the interview, he does list the people he likes most, and they're nearly all soul artists. He talks yeah. about you know, Stevie Wonder and people yeah, like that. Curtis Mayfield, he mentions, Mayfield. He talks about basically they weren't really a road band. In fact, they'd only just started going out on tour in 75, that they were very much a studio act. And how he wasn't, even though he had hits in America, he was in no rush to go and do the, the long slog tours which in those days British bands had to kind of undertake to, to crack America. He had no desire to do that. Well listen to another clip now. I mean he talks about Mickey Most. Now Mickey Most we all perceive of as the guy who like along with Chinichap was the manufacturer of sort of seventies pop. Susie Quattro's Bubble Glam. Bubble glam indeed. Very good term by me. <laughs> it just it came to me in a in a vision. <laughs> Just right there and then. Um, but, but you know, you wouldn't think that Hot Chocolate isn't a name which leaps to mind when you think about Mickey Most. In fact, Mickey Most was deeply involved in everything they did. Errol's respect for Mickey Most really stands out. It does help that this interview has been recorded at Rack Studios, so it's probably having to be on best behaviour, as Mickey <laughs> was probably in the next room. But uh, we'll, we'll listen to this clip. <laughs> No, no, he's never done that, really. He's only been interested in the beat song and uh, producing it to the best of his ability. Uh, He has got us into that. Because we're not easily... uh, We're a bit kind of, you know, set in our ways, really. Yeah, we're a bit set. He does, uh, to a certain extent... Uh, sometimes he sees things differently and he does it that way, which is um, fair enough. 
because I respect his talent very much. And so uh, if he says, well, no, I don't think that's right, then I let it go because, you know, he, he's got a lot of, his track record is good, you know. I think that's interesting. I mean, what curiously is that, you know, whilst those of us who grew up with hot chocolates as a sort of pop act, we probably didn't like a great deal. They have a lot of respect in certain areas. I mean, in the sort of Balearic music community, there are a number of hot chocolate tunes which are really big and for, for Balearic DJs, you know, which we wouldn't have expected at the time. I think that hot chocolates have achieved a sort of credibility which was absent when they were actually hit makers. I mean, they were huge. I mean, my memories of, like, Top of the Pops in the 70s are just inextricably bound up with acts like Hot Chocolate. They seem to be on Top of the Pops all the time. And as this interview makes the point, they, they had hits every year, you know, some huge hits, some but they were consistent hit yeah. makers. Yeah. And I remember, I, I mean, I couldn't say that they were one of my favourite acts, but there was something about him that I found mesmerising. Yep. And he had extraordinary charisma, something very cool about him, which, again, you hear in this audio interview. And I remember feeling rather alone with this. I think it was just me who thought he was so extraordinary. No, he was very relaxed, actually. He was very some... chilled out, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a relaxed... You yeah. know, you, you, I, I remember him vividly on Top of the Pops. He, you know, and he had bald head and he was very shiny. This wonderful bald guy. Uh, our our, our which... very last clip we'll play at the end of the podcast is why he shaved his head. He's very <laughs> funny about yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It was a very striking image he had. And as you say, mm. that he seemed very comfortable in his own skin. There's never a sort of sense that he was showing off. It, it, it seemed... Very straight from him, the, the way he was. Which is partly because, I mean, you know, he he wrote the songs. He wrote or co-wrote nearly all well, the material. Well, with Tony Wilson. Uh, yes, they, that's the, right, the, the, the they, bass player. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I wanted to mention, so what came, came to mind when I was listening to this was that I remember going to interview Alan Vega of Suicide, of all yeah. people. And he suddenly started to, and he did a cover of Everyone's a Winner on his album Sassen Strip. And I was, I was slightly puzzled by this. <laughs> and, and I asked him about hot chocolate. I said, what is it with hot chocolate? Did I miss something obvious? And he said, I thought Errol Brown was just the most incredible performer. He would hardly move, but you sensed an incredible pain in the guy, like he was really hurting. There was this air of danger to him. And that first album produced by Mickey Most is like unreal. I couldn't believe the amount of sound, the richness of it, the complexity. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, you wouldn't Alan expect Vega. Alan Vega. <laughs> yeah. And I listened to Cicero Park, the first album, on, you know, after listening to the audio. And it's, it is actually, it is rich and complex yeah. and almost kind of got that slight kind of black exploitation quality in some of the song about the ghetto. And, but it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. Mickey was, was an interesting producer. Well, I think the one thing that comes out when you listen to this interview is the feeling that the productions were a really cooperative effort between Errol and Mickey. Yeah. Um, that, yes, he would defer to Mickey most as a producer, but it was a very cooperative exercise. Mm -hmm. Jill, you never, shot, you never shot Errol, did you? I don't think I did, but I was just thinking that the problem with, with, that, with that was actually the name. I mean, hot chocolate's too silly, really, isn't it? You can't take... For, you know, there's gravitas in what you're saying. And actually, hot chocolate's just 
Yeah. Too silly. It's like a, a kitschy 70s reference also to the fact that he's a black guy, I think. You know, it's slightly problematic. Oh, but, do you but, think so? God, I haven't I, I slightly felt that. I felt that <laughs> at Seriously? the time. Yeah, a little bit. It's I, even I mean, worse then. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting that Mickey called them hot chocolate, but yeah, I know Which what you mean. Which came first, hot chocolate or chocolate milk? That band from across the pond. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this band could have been called Chocolate Milk because, I mean, he does talk in the interview about race, doesn't he? About there's two white guys. The guitar player was a sort of white, kind of rockish guitar yeah. player. And that's, that's a part of the, that's one of the ingredients, isn't it? Yeah, Mark? yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed this. You know, I wasn't yeah. expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. And I ended up actually kind of really warming to Errol as, as, a, as a person, as a personality. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah, wonderful. So we'll hear the last clip about his wonderful shiny dome at the end of the, <laughs> at the end. But Mark, tell us about some of your highlights among the new pieces we're adding. Well, absolutely. First of all, starting Record Mirror, nineteen sixty-three. Peter Jones profiling and interviewing Andy Williams. The ghastly, <laughs> now the we're talking. Yeah. And, it, and, and it turns out that. Andy Williams is an art collector, and he says, some of my prized possessions are originals by Picasso, Mira, and Buffet. Buffet? They hang on the... Do you mean do Buffet? I, I, I think that's what he means, but as, <laughs> as printed, it's Buffet. He's got a do Buffet on his wall, and he can't yeah. even pronounce his name. He says, they hang around the walls at my home. They and hang around the walls. That's great. The walls. <laughs> like, maybe near the wall, perhaps. Or they're, just sort of, they're just sort of sitting there smoking and drinking. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off you. Second thing, it's really it's more about who it is. I mean, last week I mentioned that we're getting Philip Elwood on board, who's San Francisco Examiner music critic from '65 to about 2000. So this week we're running his review of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band from the Examiner, 3rd of June 1967. He says the new Beatles recording, 12 tunes and a reprise, bears a printed footnote: "A splendid time is guaranteed for all." Lloyds could back that statement with no risk or claims. <laughs> which, which, which I like. He's, very good. He's a kind of under, very stylish and quite understated way sort of writer. Now, a living legend in the Bay Area, second yeah, only well, t- to, t- to Ralph J. Gleason, I think. You yeah. know. I think he's, sort of, he's slightly under the shadow of Ralph Gleason. Yeah. Ralph Gleason was allowed by the San Francisco Chronicle to write about the emerging underground scene in, in San Francisco in a way that Elwood clearly wasn't by the examiner. I can tell he was going to those shows because he refers to them in other pieces, yeah. but they weren't letting him run reviews of, say, The Grateful Dead at Avalon Ballroom in 1966-67. So, but he's marvellous writer, and we got hundreds of his pieces to look forward to. Terrific. That's fantastic, Mark. Fantastic. Looking forward to that. Right, the next piece is 26th of July, 1968. This is an uncredited writer who I suspect was actually John Sinclair, the MC5 manager, writing for their in-house White Panther paper, The Warren Forest Sun, out of Ann Arbor in Michigan. And it's about, yet again, the MC5 getting into a 
a dust-up with the pigs, I believe we were meant to refer to them. The headline is MC5 attacked by police on job. During the melee, an Oakland County pig, D. Gilbert, badge number 81, squirted Sinclair in the face with mace and another pig handcuffed him. Girls were screaming and crying. There was blood all over Sinclair's face and body and the floor. And the police were then beating Fred Smith, who had come up from downstairs when he heard the screams. The pigs apparently recognised Smith as a member of the band. Two of them seized Fred and started dragging him over into a corner, beating him and pushing him. It's marvellous stuff. You know, Fred Smith is, of course, Fred Sonic Smith, who went on to marry... The future Mr Patty Smith. That's right. I found online a bunch of these editions of the Warren Forest Sun, and they invariably it's about the pigs and the MC5 having <laughs> dust-ups, you know, the pigs. I miss not being able to call the fuzz the pigs. I know. The nice. What's stopping you? What's stopping you? <laughs> not um, much. Not enough. Andrew Tyler interviewing Ringo Starr for Disc in 72. This is the time when Ringo was producing movies. He, was, he did the movie with Mark Boland. Born to Boogie. And, and actually, I have to say, you know, Ringo comes out of this really well. He's a thoughtful guy. And he talks a lot about drumming. He says, I certainly don't believe in practice because it makes you perfect. And if you're perfect, you end up like a robot which I kind of quite like. He says, I'm the mud, you know. The singers and guitars can be in the river and fish in it, but I'll just lay on the bed and pound it out. <laughs> and he says, everyone I talk to says, what about Buddy Rich? Well, what about him? Because he doesn't turn me on. I much prefer to watch Charlie Watts. You know, it's... Yeah. it's, it's, it's don't we all? <laughs> don't we all, indeed. One of your greatest photos, Jill, is that wonderful shot of that portrait oh, of Charlie. Picture. Beautiful Yes, we'll picture. have to flash that up somehow. <laughs> the wonderful Vivian Goldman, we were talking earlier about women photographers. So, you know, the, she was one of the pioneering, you know, of the rock generation of, of writers. She and Kate Simon, who gets mentioned in the piece, go to Manchester to see Gladys Knight and the Pips and hang out with them. And she, she, in the interview section, she asks Gladys about what it was like having to go to the charm school at Motown when Gladys uh, was Motown. She says... You let your legs touch the chair first, then you sit down. What they didn't know, cheeky grin, was that I'd learned all that beforehand because we had a charm class at high school. <laughs> so Gladys Knight didn't need the charm school. Charm schools. Michael Goldberg for the San Francisco Chronicle, 1980, interviewing Muddy Waters. He says... I used to beat on pans and things when I was three years old and sing my songs all my life I was trying to play blues. Then he's asked how well he's doing. He says, well, hey, I don't have enough money to write home and tell Mama about, but I got enough to go to the supermarket and get a couple of T-bone steaks about twice a week, and that's pretty good for me. Sadly, when we were in Chicago for the ALA conference a few years back, we went, drove past his house in the south side, and it's about to be pulled down, even though it's got all this fantastic stuff. It's got his name as it originally was painted on the door and all of these sort of features. Some dispute between members of the family, and it was basically Mudder's house to be pulled down. It shouldn't be pulled down, it should be a museum, for fuck's sake, you know. Yeah, Speaking of, of what should. things should have museums, yeah. Well, no, well, I, no, I mean, mm. you know, slightly overstating the case there, but the house should be preserved, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is great. 1998, Adam Sweeting for The Guardian interviewing Green Gartside from Scritti Politi, who does, gives you full green here. He says, I'm a product of its history, basically. I'm an effect of the intersection of those things, of when pop met politics, met deconstruction, when little Richard met Nietzsche. When all these collided, I was the chap who was there. I do nothing but do it a terrible disservice. Which is just... <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me perfectly proper that I should make this polished pop music. 
for want of a better way of describing it. And that is as legitimately expressive of my radicalism as making indie records which are a terrible dirge, if not more so. <laughs> and he says, we did firmly come to the conclusion in the making of this record that machines can groove better than humans. Um, <laughs> I remember, I remember interviewing that. Green once. Green? Yeah, he said this great thing. He said he, he said he had this kind of epiphany where he'd go into the rough trade shop and all the bands put up the, like their top tens of the week and they were all like these scratchy, atonal little indie singles. And, and he said, and I went home and listened to Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael <laughs> Jackson. <laughs> and, and I just thought, I'm, I'm done yeah. with this nonsense. I saw the, you know. I saw the Chris <laughs> kind of first version at the Acklam Hall in 79, I guess it would be, you know. And they were horrible. I mean, it, it was, you know, just a sort of that pretty grim post-punk noise, you know. And then The Sweetest Girl came out. I fell off my chair. It was such a beautiful yeah, record, exactly. you know. Mm, that's a great yeah. song. And they did great things with Synclavias and, yeah. and other, and like, other uh, high-tech stuff. You like stuff, that sort of yeah. Woodbees period a bit more than I do. Yeah, Woodbees is not my favourite, but things like yeah. Absolute and The Word Girl, like, I, mean, I, think, I think they stand up incredibly well as, as 80s, kind, intelligent yeah. 80s yeah. pop music. I mean, for me, it was that uh, Songs to Remember. Faithless. Yeah, Faithless was fabulous Faithless, as well. Faithless Beautiful was song. why I started my band. Really? Yes. Was it? That song, I suddenly thought, song, this, is what I, great song. this is what I could be doing, because I knew the chord changes. And, you know, um, yes, it was really important to me, that. Last one is for me is Caitlin Moran interviewing Swade's Brett Anderson for the Times in '92, and he just he just again a bit like Green. He's you know, this is full Brett Anderson. He says all my stuff comes from my demon, who I get on very well with at the moment. Can't see me hang out with him in twenty years' time though. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't. And he doesn't. Jill, did you take? Pictures of Suede, or, or apart from Oasis, did you take any pictures of that, the Britpop bands? Yeah, I did a bit, actually, because I was doing the festivals in the 90s, and I saw Suede at Glastonbury and did a couple of pictures of Brett. He was a, he was a little bit sort of, oh, what's the word for it? I mean, he was not a particularly approachable sort of person. You know, he wasn't a person I would go up and spontaneously make conversation with. Okay. Similarly, Blur were also around in the, in the 90, 93, 94 period, and I did a few pictures of them as well. I did sort of bands like Dead or Alive. They were my... <laughs> <laughs> they were my bread and butter. You know, I thank Pete Burns, bless him, you know, rest in peace, for oh, keeping this yep. studio going for years and years. And then a whole bunch of bands that someday we should probably go through just to see which ones actually managed to survive, because they were a huge yeah. amount that were funded that never got anywhere and yet they had their stylists were you doing, and all that stuff were you doing press pictures were you doing publicity pictures yes I was made because I had a studio yeah. in the 80s so I, yeah I did a lot of press shoots and then for gotcha. Jules Holland and I did a lot of Squeeze I did Madness of course I did loads of Madness you did Madness I mean, it's, it's nice, quite interesting yeah. Bad Madness you know in my job as the archivist at Roxfat Pages you suddenly see in the 90s a massive explosion in the number of bands just huge numbers of artists appeared the way that you didn't see so much certainly in the 60s or the 70s to some degree it starts in the 80s in the 90s suddenly there is just a million bands appear and they get their 
front cover of Melody Maker and then vanish. You know, it, the churn was just extraordinary, you know. And, and so the, the, yeah. you know, the handful yeah. of bands which have sort of, you know, survived and have never gone away really. But, yeah, no, it's curious. Well, I found recently going through my own archive, which I, which I hadn't done, I found, for example, and very funny, I found Depeche Mode in... Where did they come from? Basildon or somewhere? Right. somewhere. Basildon. Basildon. And so they look... The kings of Basildon. Yeah, so they look about 12, I guess they were. You know, The Cure, the same, 1979, The Cure. They looked like schoolboys yeah. and then probably were. And Depeche, also Depeche Mode in cricket gear, <laughs> you know, doing something for smash wow. hits or, or, or Record Mirror, you know, doing that sort of that, thing. Yeah. And then... And then there were fashion shoots for Record Mirror who had star style with, you know, again, with Robert Smith, Sting had to come to one. Annie Lennox came, you know, the Eurythics were big at that period. So that whole period in the 80s when the face started brought in all this fashion. Yeah, yeah. You did a lot for the face, photographers. I mean, we yeah, didn't did even lot, really yeah. talk about the face, but you were one of the, the principal photographers that Nick Logan used. I always loved that we posted once a picture of ZZ Top in cricket gear for... <laughs> For smash hits, and you know, they've got the jumpers, one of them's tossing the um, ball up. So, yeah, they, Frank Beard is tossing a cricket ball. Yeah, in, it's yeah, just it's hilarious. Just they probably wouldn't know cricket. Is a they don't know what arse. cricket is. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but it was a great picture. That's very that's quaint. So, I like that uh, a lot. That's my lot in terms of library. Uh, Barney, okay. Jasper, what do you Well, jump, I'll jump in with a couple of things. One is that we, because she's just released an album that everyone is raving about, a Q&A with Fiona Apple from 2006. It's not terribly revealing, and it slightly bears out my suspicion that Fiona Apple is a, is a giant fraud of the First <laughs> Order. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> I'm not convinced by her. I think she's kind of willfully kooky, and I think people take that as as something sort of genuine. Jasper, being a, a younger person, do you have any strong views on La Apple, La Pomme? Who is Fiona Apple? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that probably, that probably answers no, that. No, seriously, who is Fiona By Apple? By the way, Bonnie, it wouldn't be La Apple, it'd be <laughs> Lapple. With Lapple, well, I'm going to call her La Pomme. With apostrophe. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, she's, she, she's released an arm called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. She's a sort of kooky, eccentric, damaged... I'm sorry to out myself as having... Okay, no worries. ...no knowledge whatsoever well, about But her, one so of the big be... releases of the last two, three weeks has been her latest album, which was, I don't know, eight or nine years in the making. Oh, it's been hailed as some kind of masterpiece. That a bit tortured to me. Yeah, she is a bit tortured. Some people think she's a genius. I have to say... I really like sort of kooky female geniuses and I don't actually think she's one of them so that's but we've it's good to have another piece about her there's a funny piece about the making of Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Welcome to the Pleasure Dome which has got some terrific quotes by Paul Morley whom Jill will remember Paul being the sort of ideologist behind ZTT Records (laughs) he says it was my idea to make this album a double album playing into Trevor Horn's, the producer's, prog tendencies, my love of the likes of Tommy, Todd Rundgren, Tago Mago, and cutting against the very idea of a singles pop group. I mean, to me, that's hilarious, given that Frankie were like the biggest pop group of that moment. They were absolutely massive. 
for about a year. And then he, he talks about their sleeves being, I mean, it's wonderfully pretentious, Mark. You will bridle us. The ZTT sleeves were like acoustic websites, he says. But they were also, they were part of the neurotic assault on pop mediocrity that I took into ZTT from the NME. The last thing actually sort of kind of flows out of that in a nice way. Dave Simpson wrote a great piece about two years ago about music journalism saying that uh, actually music journalism was alive and well, contrary to what many commentators would say. I think there was this feeling, and he quotes a few people like Michael Bonner of Uncut, that when the tabloids jumped on like Oasis and Blur, Jill, that was sort of the, you know, it, it was all up for kind of NME-style rock journalism. But actually sort of what happened was that a lot of the publishing got consolidated and, when, and, and things like Team Rock went bust. And what we have now is a landscape which actually makes a little bit more sense. It's a bit more niche So you And he uses the examples of Prog Magazine and Metal Hammer Magazine. And the, they don't sell a huge amount, but they actually are profitable because they appeal to a very distinct readership. Yes, Small, I've got one I mean, interesting comment on that, which is that Viva, Viva Rock, is it that magazine Viva La Rock? Viva La Rock. Viva La Rock. So Christy Hind, when she wasn't doing anything else, she said, the only thing I'll do is Viva La Rock because they're a proper rock magazine. So she did a special shoot for them. She got dressed up for it. She went on the cover because she said they're a genuine rock magazine. They're not a fashion magazine. They're not trying to... Yeah, I think even the artists are, are, are appreciating the more niche elements, you know. Jasper, what have you got, mate? What have I got? Um, <laughs> mate. <laughs> yeah, obviously not Fiona Apple. Obviously not Fiona Apple. No, I've got for 2000, I added a monster primer on Beyond the Velvet Underground by Bieber Kopf in The Wire, which is sort of just an incredible tracing what every member of, of the VU did. It goes through loads and loads of albums that each individual member, so John Cale, Nico, Lou Reed, Mo Tucker, have released since the Velvet Underground. It's a very interesting piece. It's worth... If you're if you're a fan of any of those artists, and there's a very funny quote, I think I seem to recall actually that when we had Tammy Faye Starlight on, yeah. she actually said said something very similar, which is Nico bursting into tears when she heard Tom Wilson and Larry Fallon's Chamberfolk arrangements for Chelsea Girl. I cried because of the flute. I hate it so much. <laughs> there should be a button on record players. A no flute button. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's a conversation we have in the Roxback Pages office regularly. What's the term? Flute alert. Flute alert. <laughs> it's amazing the number of tracks out. that come on in our office, you know, our actual office rather yeah. than this virtual one, which have flutes at least three times a day. It's like there's a flute alert. In and the I RBP hate the flute. Office. Like Nico, I hate the flute too. With the exception of... What's his name from Traffic, who played on Electric Ladyland? Some very nice flute yeah. working. And Chris, um, Chris Wood. Chris Wood. We, we're with Nico on the, the, fl- the, the flute. <laughs> so no no yeah. Jethro but... Tull, then, in your Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh that produced some mirth. <laughs> how, many, how many times did you shoot the well, Tull? I did a couple of times. You know, you yeah. want to see him on his standing on his yeah. one leg and all yeah. of that. Yeah, it was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, nice, what next, nice. Jeff? Next up, the unlikely double bill of Foo Fighters supported by CeeLo Green. That is. At Wembley Arena. That is highly unlikely. Which is, is so bizarre. And it's because it's one of those 
NME sponsored big gigs to I think it was specifically for the occasion of that the enemy had just given Dave Grohl a godlike genius quote unquote oh, award oh. which I think I think that I does sort of speak revolver. to what we were talking about before about music journalism and how some of the big old heavy hitters went slightly down the tubes sort of at the beginning of of last decade so yeah Dave Grohl it's funny, it's funny though it's a funny review Ian Gittins goes to see it for the Guardian and he sort of points out that CeeLo Green was painfully aware that he was not the support act that most Foo Fighters fans would have chosen. <laughs> but I actually saw CeeLo Green once at a festival, and I, it was at a time when he was, I think, possibly on the substances somewhat. And he, and he basically had a rant at the audience and left the stage early because he was, felt he wasn't getting enough applause or something. So he was, he was a bit egomaniac at that point. But I do think some of those, the crazy, Niles Barkley, that record he did with, was it Danger Mouse, the producer? Yes. yes. And fuck you, his oh, top great. Page, this is a great, great record, pop record. Yeah. And I think Ian Gittins enjoyed him more than he enjoyed Foo Fighters. He says new tracks like White Limo and Rope were big riff workouts as clinical and therapeutic as a session in the gym. But the grinning growls, charm and wittier sides couldn't obscure the many lulls in a long set. The Foo Fighters put bums on seats, but contrary to enemies' belief, they are never touched by the hand of God. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's that. <laughs> that's it for me also. So oh, fabulous. I oh, just want to throw one last quick mention for the, the wonderful, the glorious Fred Della sent me earlier in the week. He has finally retired from doing Time Machine in Mojo. And one of the last ones he wrote that I don't think they're going to run, so he sent it to us, is a t- terrific piece about the Zoot Suit Riot in Los Angeles in June 1943, which is really fascinating. That extraordinary phenomenon of Mexican-Americans wearing these extravagant clothes inspired by Cab Calloway and getting into fights with racist servicemen who came down to beat them up. It's, it's, I mean, I I knew a little bit about it and we probably all heard of Zoot Suits, but Fred gives us much more historical detail than I was aware of. So, so I meant to mention that earlier. Uh, That's that one in. Yeah. I will definitely be reading that because it's it's a really interesting period of history as well. I mean, it was also tied in with the emergence of the first gang culture in Los Angeles, which was very Mexican. Yeah, that, 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 well, Chicano, yeah. you know, really interesting stuff. I asked Fred if he'd come on the podcast and he regretfully declined. He said his memory just isn't, is not good enough. I mean, he's 89 years old. Wow. Oh, wow. And he's been, he was still doing Time Machine and the crossword in Mojo <laughs> uh, two months ago. Wasn't Phenomenal. it? Um, Neil Tennant was talking about how he was sort of, on the NME, Fred was on the NME, but also yeah. sneaking over the road to do stuff for, for smash hits. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, that that was a good cross. Yeah. Yeah, oh, he was such a good guest, Neil was. He's lovely. We're going to go out with the last uh, bit of audio, which is highly amusing about Errol Brown's shaved head. Yeah. Last order of business is to thank you, Jill, yeah. so much thank for you coming so much. on our show. I should also note that we are hopefully launching a collaborative effort between Rock Archive and Rock's Back Pages where you'll be able to, on our site, you'll be able to see some pictures that you usually wouldn't be able to and on the Rock Archive site, you'll be able to see some of the some of the archive texts that are on Rock's Back Pages. Absolutely. Is it called Synergy, Jasper? Yeah, love it. <laughs> we don't, love we it. don't um, use words um, like so Synergy. That's, that sounds a bit too, that sounds a a bit too business speak, from Belgium. 
synergy going forward. I think these are kind of you know, <laughs> languages. But anyway, but, no, that, yes, so the first, the first of those will be that that Tom Waits Santa Rosa shoot that as Barney if by and Jill, magic, you, you as went if by on magic, together. Jill. So the very thing we talked about that is going to be fingers so, yeah. crossed. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'll try and find the odd frame that nobody's ever seen. So that'd be interesting. That'd be exciting. Yeah, and that'll hopefully be a continuing collaboration. So look forward to that and go and visit the Rock Archive site because there are lots of fantastic images on there. And go to the homepage of Rock's Back Pages and see all the stuff we've been talking about today. Absolutely. Tons of Jill Fermanovsky, tons of rock photography, and we will be back next week. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank, Thank you, you, Jill. So Thank you, Bye, guys. everybody. Bye. 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 Why don't you shave your head? Well, there's no reason not to answer that one. Uh, I was losing my hair. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no... Ah, was it five and a half, six years ago? You know, one of those fellows who started receding when I was seventeen years old, and so uh, by the time I became got into this business, I thought, well, it's going pretty bad. I thought, well, about that, you know. <laughs> let me try and see what, what I can do. And I just took it off. Right. <laughs> Did you have to continue doing? I mean, I you have to do it every two days, more or less. Every two days? Yeah. I have to shave it, yeah. I do it myself. I do it myself. Oh, it must have terrible somebody doing it for you. Yeah. <laughs> they may just be in a bad mood. That was Errol Brown in conversation with John Tobler in 1975, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Jill Fermanovsky. Visit rockarchive.com to see her photography. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.